ladies and gentlemen, it is the final regular show of WG for the year of 2023. Let's make it a good one. And yeah, finish off in the West Public Games, Chuck D. Bring the noise. FM Podcast Network, I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back ladies and gentlemen, hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. And yeah, we have the final show of this year, 2023. A um, lot to obviously reflect on, um, I feel like it's been, you know, I've learned, I feel like I've learned a lot um, this year, um, personally, and just as the, and just the machinations of the world, <laughs> you know what I mean, and uh, just the, uh, you know, those those first-hand experiences really do a lot, and, you know, this is a little part of it, it's a very significant part of it for me, hopefully it's some form of something for you, whatever it be, education, something to listen to as you do shit, whatever it may be, I appreciate you listening regardless, and yeah, we'll have, um, we'll have some uh, stuff for you to step to um, during the month of December, I've got a few 30 questions coming through, I'm also going to hopefully do a 5 EPN radio. Um, that's obviously only going to be on Spotify for obvious reasons. And I say obvious like you're all aware of what Anchor is. But uh, it's done via Anchor and Anchor is owned by Spotify now. So everything's on Spotify. And, you know, if you're going to listen to the music, which what which what the um, uh, the Chinua Charlie um, 5 EPN radio show is, is that I basically play tracks and that comes up from Spotify, so it's only exclusive on Spotify, but um, I'm sure you'll clock that um, whenever I drop it, but yeah, I'm going to do my songs list, um, I'm actually building um, building my list as we speak, um, I've got eight tracks uh, for the songs list at the moment, I want to try and find two more so I can make it a nice round ten, um, but yeah, it's kind of, um, I-, I was kind of surprised that I've only only had eight this year that have just like really taken me um and th- there's some tracks i have in mind that i might add but um i usually try and veer away from that because i used to do it in a certain way that i don't like in hindsight i wish i didn't um and um doing it in terms of you know what's on my regular rotation what are the songs that actually spin constantly and then adding two more feels a bit manufactured um, but you know, if I feel motivated to talk about them, then I feel like that's that's a good baseline. Um, so yeah, we're on the hunt. For, I'm on the hunt for two more tracks. So for the songs list, um, I've got um, I've start, already started listening back to um, albums and EPs. Um, I've got a f- I've got about three in the album list right now. So that's um, that's obviously going to build up, and um, that will eventually be like a little short list. Hopefully, um, <laughs> hopefully of a, a, a of a decent number and not you know fifty like I had um, a year or two ago, um, but yeah, hopefully the shortlist is short, <laughs> relatively, and uh, maybe cut that down or um, or whatever may be. Um, but yeah, we've got a few projects in there already, ready locked in um, in the shortlist. I'm really happy about those and um, really excited to talk about them. Really excited to write about them. Um, I'm actually already writing a list of um, something completely fresh um, this is going to be something I've 
it's probably going to be a one-time thing um but i basically called it um late bloom loves and it's a you know if 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 the top 8 which will be hopefully will be 10 uh songs of the year on top of that <coughs> excuse me I'm also going to have a top 15 of what I call Late Bloom Loves, which is basically, you know, those tracks that, you know, you maybe listen to first time and it kind of just went by you, right? And then you go back to it, you go back to maybe that project or that you, you're reminded of that song and you go back to it and you're like, oh, wow, this is actually, you know, really top tier. Um, so that's, that's kind of the criteria I have for that particular list is um, something that, you know, I've just been thinking about for the past... Um, few weeks and I feel like is worthy worthy of some talk um I feel motivated to write about them and that's all I need that's all the motivation I need um so yeah I'm going to drop that as well at some point uh maybe bef- you know maybe just like as a maybe just as a uh, what I want to call it like a you know just an appetizer to um what the main course is obviously of uh, the songs EPs and album lists um I also have another one I want to do um, pertaining to um, first-time watches of um, TV and film um, that I've had this year. I've actually been keeping a rolling list of um, TV series and films I've watched for the first time this year. And, um, you know, just, just out of curiosity, I guess. And it's very interesting looking at them now, um, of the of what I've seen. And um, I remember posting a screenshot. <laughs> I remember posting a screenshot a few months in of just like here's what I've you know spun for the first time so far and people were just like really the first time only just now and I was like yeah yeah you know just just haven't just haven't got around to it and now I've got around to it so you know it's it's it's, it's interesting I feel and uh, I feel again I feel motivated to write about them so I might um I might compile like a maybe a top 10, maybe a top 15, who knows, um, uh, or maybe split it into two, like, you know, 10 for TV, 10 for film, who knows, um, but we'll see how that goes, we'll see how that goes, um, once I do these, uh, once I do this late bloom, lo- late bloom loves, um, is what I've called it, once I do that, I'll move on to the TV and film stuff, and at the same time, I'm going to be binge listening to all of these albums that I've put on the long list. Um, I haven't counted the long list, but overall, in terms of albums and uh, EPs that I've spun this year, to date, is 325. Um, and I've obviously cut that down into a long list of hopefully less than 100, I think. <laughs> I haven't counted, again, uh, the amount of projects. I usually just like go through them, and I'm like, yeah, I like that. That's worth another spin. Um, and then I just note it down for later. So... Yeah, I'm currently in, I think, like, February at the moment in terms of the months of um, the months of listening. So I've already gone through January, got a couple in there, um, and now I'm in fe- deep into February as well. So hopefully, you know, by maybe, you know, in the next week or two, I'll be, you know, deeper into the months. And, uh, you know, once I, once, I, once I get closer to now, obviously, uh, you know, there's a few weeks in time that I feel relatively fresh um in terms of you know what i enjoy so i might not have to listen to them again um but then i can just you know look at what i have in terms of the shortlist and you know if i feel like they're better than what i have on that shortlist then i'll add them if i don't then i don't i'll maybe put on the honorable mentions or something and uh yeah that is um that is my that is my i guess how i've been thinking about these lists i don't know why i've presented you with 
thoughts about that but that's what's on my mind right now and um, I'm really excited to I'm always excited to do these lists um, it's a real it's a real source of enjoyment for me personally um, I know they're just lists but they are lists that are you know extremely me um, you know no influence in any fashion it's literally because I like them and also I have a motivation to write about them and you know there's a lot of things I would write in life but I just don't have the motivation to um, and that's what it comes down to um, and yeah what's the point if you don't have motivation you know what's the point of doing anything if you don't have a motivation you don't find any form of enjoyment from it um, but anyway life lessons life life gems drop in everywhere uh, <laughs> that out the way we do have a show to finish off with, uh, to finish off the year with. Uh, we have a health, film, life, and politics uh, to finish off. Because, of course, right? Of course. Of course I'm going to do Of course I'm going to do politics. Uh, might begin with that one. Who knows? I probably will. Uh, but, yeah. Four minutes before we begin, for the last time in 2023, email, socials, soon to be off Twitter by the time um, the next regular wg episode comes in january i will be off tw- i will be off twitter so that's um just you know once again just a last note about that i will be off that shit by the time the next uh, regular wg episode comes in uh but yeah uh email socials writing of course writing right <laughs> especially now uh all of that in the full show notes um as well as the music and podcasts under the 5 epn Digging in Digits will still continue throughout the month of December, so if you are subscribed to that show, um, don't you know? Don't fret. Um, I do ask Ben if he wants to take the hiatus uh, every you know every year, and uh, he doesn't. He never goes for it. So we keep we keep moving. We keep continuing. Um, uh, maybe there'll be a year where he wants to do it for whatever reason. <laughs> but for this time and for the past few years, he hasn't gone for it. So we keep we continue on DITD that will keep on moving forward. Uh, we just did an episode on Deltron 3030, um, and uh, we have some good stuff coming in the pipeline as well, as always. And that's it for the final time, 2023. Let the beat drop. Let's get into the show. In a week where... Israel and Hamas agree on a four-day ceasefire and hostage releases, um, and, as, and as I speak, um, they've recently agreed on an extra two days on top of that, so that's good. Um, let's just try and get a complete ceasefire, shall we? That'd be great. Um, Dublin is set ablaze after three children and one woman are stabbed. Uh, Oscar Pistorius is granted parole from uh, in January, or from January, uh, nearly 11 years after murdering his girlfriend. Uh, Gene Knight, singer best known for the classic 1971 hit, Mr. Big Stuff. Um, she's died at age 80, RIP. Um, and Young Thug's Rico trial begins, uh, which has already produced um, some... Um, kind of dangerous rhetoric and also just hilarious stuff. Um, I think I saw a, uh, I think I saw a quote on um, Young Thug's lawyer, um, basically, um, I guess, uh, connecting. Oh yeah, here we go. Truly humbled under God. That's what Thug means. Outstanding. <laughs> Just really outstanding. Um, so yeah, that trial's continuing uh, or beginning. And uh, yeah, let's begin with that politics that I mentioned. Um, so um, this is just something that I just wanted to get out there because 
you know, I don't care, I refuse to care, but it's also one of those things that are very important to actually acknowledge, um, and it is the kind of um, humanizing of politicians. Um, as I keep saying, politicians are demons, um, and I mean that I mean that shit, because nobody in their right mind would see a fucking uh, genocide happening and just go, yeah, that's fine, um, yeah, yeah, of course, that's fine, or, you know, send fucking weapons to that country, which the which Britain and the US are still doing, um, don't get it twisted, um, politicians' hands are not, are not, un- are not clean in any of these situations, um, on top of a lot of other things, um, in history and, uh, and, and now, um, but this is all about Nigel Farage, um, our, our, our guy, Nigel Farage, um, he was obviously in, um, I'm a celebrity at the moment. Um, not watching that shit. Never even. I've never. I've never actually watched that show. Um, overall, I just. I've never found the interest in it. Um, but this is the thing. This is the thing where politicians go on shows like this and are able to just spew their shit, spew their rhetoric, or just even be humanized as if like they didn't just, you know, um, in Nigel Farage's case, um, incite a lot of hatred in this country and around the world. Um, but yeah, this is an article, uh, opinion piece by a comedian, Stuart Lee, um, via The Guardian. <coughs> and it's called Nigel Farage Shouldn't Be in the Jungle. Get him out of there. Um, so yeah, um, as if you if you guys haven't haven't uh, experienced Stuart Lee at all, um, he's has this very unique way of doing comedy. Um, he's a stand-up comedian overall. Um, and he just has this... The the driest wit you have ever ever seen. It's 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 kind of outstanding how how he does it, um, and how he crafts his work. Um, but yeah, he sometimes just goes on a rant via the Guardian, and here's one of them. So I just thought it'd be funny to give it a spin. In 2011, Nigel Farage co-chaired the Europe of Freedom and Democracy grouping uh, with Italy's Francesco Spironi, who described the Norwegian white supremacist mass murder and unlikely celebrity Top Gear fan Anders Bering Breivik as someone whose, quote, ideas are in defence of Western civilization." unquote. Farage has received 1.5 mil to appear on ITV's I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, with Van der Dijk. Do Anton Deck believe uh, Breivik's July 2011 shooting of 69 people, most of them teenagers, on an island of, I'm going to say, Utoya, I'm probably represent, saying that wrong, uh, represented a defense of Western civilization? Do Anton Deck, like Breivik, think Top Gear is, quote, one of the funniest shows on TV, dot, 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 and one of the very few programs at the Burka Broadcasting Corporation still worth seeing, unquote? Or do they prefer Bill Burr's new anti-woke movie, Old Dads? In 2017, Farage was invited to address the Alternative for Deutschland uh, party, AFD, uh, by Beatrix von Storch, the granddaughter of Hitler's finance minister, <laughs> God. and woman who said German border guards should be allowed to shoot migrants, an attitude she shares with Rwanda, treaty or no treaty. Farage has received 1.5 million, <laughs> I see what he's doing there, uh, to get me out of here with Van and Deck. Do Anna Deck have a joint view on whether it is right to shoot migrants? Or do their opinions differ? Would they like to meet Hitler's friend's granddaughter? Farage has, be, has, seen, has been happy repeatedly <laughs> to guess on info wars. I'm only, I, I know what's coming next because it's just... <laughs> See what I mean? He's just, <laughs> the, dude is, the dude is so dry and, repe- and the, repe- the repetition here is just making me crease already. <laughs> Alright. 
<coughs> Excuse me. All right. Franz has been happy repeatedly to guest on InfoWars with the far-right American conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, who said that the climate crisis is a hoax initiated by World Bank and that the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre in Connecticut was faked and that the US government is drugging the water supply to make men gay. Farage has received 1.5 million to appeal and I'm a celebrity gave me out of here with Anadek. Does Deck believe that the American government is drugging water to gay men up? Does Ant have any opinion about gay water? <laughs> oh my god, it keeps coming. In 2016, exiters such as Farage claimed the exit would reduce NHS weight in this, increase education funding, reduce food costs, boost housing stock, control borders, and strengthen fishing and farming. None of those things happened, and the rivers are full of unregulated post-exit shit too. And Farage has received 1.5 million to appear on ITV's other celebrity game me out of here within the deck. Deck looks very clean, but perhaps I just ruined human excrement. <laughs> I expect so. Oh, this is great. I'm crying. As a teenager... Oh, anyway, I just need to... Okay, he does... He, he does this... Gosh, he does this so many times. He does this literally for every paragraph apart from the last one. This is outstanding. I love this. This is the best. I should read Stuart Lee more. This is funny. Oh, all right. Let me wipe my eyes right quick. <coughs> I need my eyes to read. Okay. As a teenage army cadet, an Enoch Powell fan, uh, France reportedly marched through a Sussex village, Sussex village, chanting Hitler Youth songs. And was recalled by an old school friend singing an un, uh, unattributed uh, uh, verse beginning, quote, gas them all, gas them all, gas them all, unquote. While denying the specifics, Farage argues, not entirely unreasonably, that the mid-80s were a volatile time when people, quote, were attracted to extreme groups on both sides of the debate, unquote. But what specific debate was that exactly one wonders? The debate over whether people should be guessed? And what was the other side in that debate? The side that believed people shouldn't be guessed? To be fair, teenagers often don't understand the seriousness of what they are saying. Nonetheless, Farage has received 1.5 million. To be on ITV's, I'm celebrating getting me up here with Anti Deck. Does the show's sponsor, Tom Bowler, believe it's acceptable to gas people? Do Anna Deck have different views on the matter, democratically echoing both sides of the debate? In 2016, Farage's UKIP released a poster of Syrian refugees captioned Breaking Point, widely viewed by Unison and Archbishop of Canterbury, for example, as inadvertently echoing Nazi propaganda and likely to incite racial hatred. Farage has received 1.5 billion to appear on I'm Serving Get Me Out of Here with Anna Deck. Does Tom Bowler feel Nazi undertones in political advertising are acceptable? Does Ant? Is Deck ambivalent? In How They Broke Britain, James O'Brien points out, perhaps ten, ten, tendentiously, tendentiously, as is his right, that within hours of the breaking point poster being unveiled, the main supporting MP Joe Cox had been fatally stabbed and shot in the street by a white supremacist terrorist. And then, and that a week later, Farad boasted his short-term memory, perhaps damaged by the terrible 2010 crash he suffered while flying a UKIP banner through some clouds, that the exit had been achieved, quote, without a single shot being fired, unquote. Farage has received 1.5 million to appear on ITV's I'm a Serbian Gaming Out of Here with Anna Deck. Does Ant share Farage's view that the exit was achieved without a single shot being fired? Perhaps Deck believes that Joe Cox was on some level a casualty of the charge atmosphere the Leave campaign fostered? Who knows? 
The problem with having Fraj on I'm Celebrity, get me out of here, is that most of the jungle twats and the two perma-grinning apologist pricks who present it do not have the ability or the inclination to offer even the gentlest in of, of informed criticism of Farage's untenable pol- political positions and unsavoury historical associations. Farage may as well be on BBC News with a bunch of acquiescent BBC News journalists. Thus, ITV provides an uncritical platform for a dangerous demagogue to present himself as a man of the people without being held to account in any meaningful way, paving his way to power. Sound familiar? The Apprentice gave America Donald Trump, and Have I Got News For You gave Britain Boris Johnson. If another political assassination follows Farage's further ascent, Deck will have blood on his hands, and Ant will have blood on his face. Yes, I meant to say that, as the blood spatters, see, I imagine both Ant and Deck instinctively trying to shield their faces, but that Ant's reaction time would be a little slower. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ, that was outstanding. Alright, that was good. That was good, that was objectively one of the best things I've read this year, for, for just, um... See, this is, this is, this is just, um... You know, that's 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 just good writing right there, man. That's just that's just some good writing. You know, repetition is something I feel like um a lot of people um you know, think that is a bad thing. And I get it, right? Sometimes you listen to a song and they say a word too much and it's just like, Alright, we get it, give you a rest. Um, but that was good. That was a great use of repetition. Um repetition is a just a thing that is really Rarely done well, but um, big ups to Stuart Lee for that one. That was a really good one, um, and it makes and yeah, I get it, right? Um, a lot of people have made that made that um, assumption, right? That you know, now that he's been allowed and has been paid to uh, to make an attempt to humanize himself, then he can just come through, become leader of the Tory Party, and and then we go through this cycle again we go through the same shit cycle except with someone who actually knows what to do in terms of that Rishi Sunak don't know what the fuck to do Liz Trust don't know what the fuck to do Boris Johnson in some ways knew what to do but he was also a fucking idiot Farage I don't know man there's just a little bit um there's just a, that callousness has some has some logic to it um not good logic but logic that he can firmly um package you know firmly package into something that could be um very edible for people um and hey man he got the exit done so <laughs> i i'm not putting anything past him and i'm not putting anything past the british public to be completely fucking swooned by him um uh, but you know i know better i know he's a demon i know a majority of politicians are demons and the fact that ITV has done this is a extreme blight on our community and really just shows how shit this society can be that we would actually be bothered um, to uh, to acknowledge this person and to entertain this guy um, via technically our entertainment. You know, I don't care if he eats some kangaroo bollocks. I really don't. I really don't care. In, you know what I'd rather have instead? You know what I'd really rather have? Give him 1.5 million to go to jail. Do that. How about that? Deal? Let's do that.
Uh, this is one of those episodes that I don't think is um, I uh, crafted it pretty. I don't think I crafted it well uh, because they're about. I've I've gone. I, sh- I probably should have done the Farage thing last because there's just some you know funniness to it. Um, the others aren't quite that. One's a yeah. I don't know. Let's just do health and just continue on. <laughs> Oh boy, didn't craft this well. But anyway, this is something that I feel like needs to be talked. I wanted to talk about um, before the last episode um, or on the last episode because if I don't, then I'm gonna feel like I missed an opportunity. Um, so this is a um, this is a piece uh, by Yorkshire Bylines, um, written by Tom Hegarty. And it's called NHS England's Half Billion Pound Deal with Palantir, or Palantir, whatever you want to call it, um, what you need to know. Um, And this is just something that I really wanted to talk about because I feel like, I feel like the NHS as we know it's dead. Um, And, you know, you could possibly say that it died 10 years ago or five years ago or during COVID. Um, There are a lot of, there are a lot of times where you consider the NHS dead. Um, I consider this the moment to be the NHS being dead um, in in its in in the way that we thought about it before. The NHS has changed for the worse um, with this, I believe. So this is a data deal, and um, we'll get we'll get into it. It literally asks the question: What is the NHS federated data platform? Why was Palantir chosen to run it? Um, is the is the F- FDP uh, worth the price tag? And um, you know. Well, and asking, can we opt out? Which is a great question to ask. Um, so, yeah, this is just a very... This is an, an explainer piece, but I just feel that there's just a lot to this that needs to be acknowledged, at least, that this is bad. This is really bad. Um, there's actually a good episode on uh, Guardians Today in Focus. Um, they recently did an episode on this. Um, they had a, um American... Um, who lives in Britain, I assume, um, kind of like activists and former human rights lawyer to talk about this. And she put it down very eloquently um, in that pod. So if you want to go listen to that, you know, you know where to find it. To name focus, go go give it a spin. Um, but yeah, let's jump right into this one uh, and get the deeds. All right, it's the largest data deal in NHS history today. Half a billion pound contract to manage NHS data in the fast new system, the FDP, Federate Data Platform was awarded to US company Palantir. It's a turning point for the NHS. It's about your right to control who sees your health record and how this country should handle one of the most precious public assets of our NHS has, our collected health data. Fox Love, uh, Fox Glove has been can- campaigning on health data, speaking to NHS staff, investigating how government is trying to use our health data for years. Here's what you need to know. The FDP is a government project to centralise NHS data with a £480 million price tag. So far, five areas of work have been named, but the government says this scope will expand. It indicates health data in the FDP will be put to further uses, uh, but not what, the, not what those uses will be. Neither has it made ironclad commitments not to use our data later for other more controversial uses, such as sharing it with commercial companies for profit, or other government departments. Details on safeguards are vague and changing. Once the FDP is built and our data starts to flow, it seems the main thing standing between data and its reuse for new purposes beyond our care is the Secretary of State for Health and official and the officials of uh, at NHS England. 
Palantir is a US tech company uh, with no track record with the NHS until the pandemic. Got the contract to run the NHS COVID data store without competition. The contract for a tool meant to help the health service manage data during the pandemic was handed over in secret until we, an open democracy, forced the contract to be published. The government paid a a token £1 fee. Good deal, you might think, except Palantir was later paid £23 as part of the deal, then another 11.5 this year. On top of that, the government is paying Palantir another £24.9 to move the data into this tool, uh, in this tool, into the FDP. Palantir's chair and sh- uh, largest shareholder, Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel, of all people. Um, I should, um, in the... Um, in the Guardian um, uh, pod, uh, there was a clip of Peter Thiel talking about how our, and our I mean, you know, Brits, um, see the NHS, or English people, I guess, um, see the NHS um, as kind of like a Stockholm Syndrome thing, where we just think it's, you know, this really great thing when actually it's bad, and Jesus Christ, the red flags is, is absurd. Um, anyway. Donors to Donald Trump. There you go. In January, Thiel described Britain's here we go affection for the NHS as Stockholm syndrome, and urged government to quote rip the whole thing from the ground and start over unquote. So yeah, that's that's who we got right now. The government says it has run 36 FDP pilots at trusts around the country to see how the system may work. These pilots run on the same platform as the COVID data store, Palantir's foundry. It was revealed in March that 11 of these pilots have been suspended or paused. Recent information suggests that at least 7 of these pilots remain inactive. One trust, Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital, said Palantir's product didn't meet our needs. Uh, Milne Keynes, a general hospital, binned its Palantir pilot after staff were made to enter data manually. Investigative work by the Health Service Journal found uh, found that out of 36 NHS trusts where FDP pilots were run by Palantir, only 8 were willing to say the pilot provided benefits, about 22%. To state the obvious, a project worth £480 million will need need to work well for the entire NHS, which you spend half a billion pounds on the tool that only helps 11% of the time. Uh, Right. Should we... uh, Data sharing, can I opt out? Should I? It's complicated. The normal rule is that for your direct care, you can't opt out of data sharing. For uses beyond your care, you usually have a choice, but the government hasn't been clear that it will respect your right to opt out for uses beyond your care. In August, Health Minister Lord Markham's committed to, quote, reform, uh, reform of the National Data Opt-Out, N-D-O-O, NEW, and added that, another quote, communicating clearly how the FDP conforms... <laughs> Excuse me, with the endu and reforming uh, patient choice remains a high priority for me and NHS England. Unquote. Good patient choice in the NHS is confusing and needs an update. But in October, the government changed tack. Its FAQ now says you can't opt out of FDP because it is for direct care or for users beyond your care because your data will be anonymous. That can't be quite right. Most of the ways an NHS uses data are beyond direct care, plus real anonymous anonymization of highly specific patient records is very hard to achieve and if the data is actually pseudonym pseudonymous you know what I'm saying right (laughs) pseudonym 
pseudonymous, pseudonymous, how do you say it, pseudonymous, uh, you know what I mean, uh, <laughs> unless you kill metric <laughs> anonymous, much easier to say, opt out should apply, Foxglove have been uh, fighting for patient choice, uh, they don't follow the work here, right, there you go, there's a plug about Foxglove, um, but yeah, um, Jesus Christ, um, and by the way, Foxglove is an independent, not-for-profit organization that fights um, to make tech fair for everyone. Um, and that's where Tom Hegarty um, originates. So, yeah, um, that's a lot. And um, I wanted to just at least throw that out there, that this is happening. And um, the fact, you know, um, even when even when Jeremy Corbyn was um, doing the manifesto stuff for that particular election um, back then, now five, six years ago now, um, I remember him unveiling uh, plans that the government had um, to basically, you know, sell out the NHS, you know, to private private companies, to American private companies especially. I remember, you know, watching a Channel 4 bit on it. Um, it was very just, it was very dangerous. I was just like, oh, fuck, they, they've, they basically already started it. Like, I thought they were, I thought, I didn't realise they were that deep into it. They were having meetings about that shit, right? And that was that was six years ago. That that was a while back now. Um, so you know the fact that it's come to this is not surprising at all. Um, but yeah, this is kind of where I drawn the line in that case. I just feel like the NHS is has ceased to exist in terms of what it was. Um, and now you know to have a company led by Peter Thiel of all fucking people, um, it's just. I don't know, it's just, it's just very, it's very sad, very depressing, um, that, you know, we're watching an institution just fucking crumble before our very eyes, um, and, uh, there's not really much else to do apart from just be aware of it, and, you know, that's the case for a lot of things in life, um, I've acknowledged that a lot of times over the, over the years when, especially when doing this pod, I, you know, I acknowledge it. I, you know, keep up with things, I stay up to date, and, uh, you know, awareness is, awareness is a big part of the battle, and, uh, hopefully people are aware of this, um, because this is, this can lead into very, very dangerous territory. let's move on to life and um, this is a piece um, that has actually been um, republished Um, I think this was uh, originally dropped in uh, first published in Byline Times in 2019 so I mean there's all the possibility that I've actually read this before to be fair Um, but yeah this is via Byline Supplement and it's uh, called The Diary of a Homeless Man and uh, it's about a man called Drew B who explains the experience of sleeping rough in London and his battle against being deported, and um, I just feel like this was a um, this was a uh, an important thing to talk about again. Just before I, you know, go on the hiatus, because even though Swella Bravman's gone, um, I've you know th- this this homelessness is a crisis, and you know it's not the, the government ain't ain't amongst other things ain't um, reacting to this well and ain't making plans well in terms of how to combat this. Um, they don't... <laughs> they, 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 they shall exist when there's a pandemic about, apparently. After that, fuck them. You know what I mean? It's just... It's, it's a bit silly um, to not realise that 
they had the formula right there and then they just went ahead and just gone back to the usual usual antiquated way of thinking um so let's jump right into this uh, little piece um about homeless about about diary of a homeless man i guess over the past few years uh, my local council and all the government has unleashed unleashed some interesting initiatives the quote-unquote enforcement officers of my local borough have been my favorite clad in black fatigues eerily reminiscent of a failed paramilitary coup they're sent to quote-unquote clean up my newly drenchified area patrolling with keen eyes for rubbish they find the public and homeless up to 80 quid for dropping receipts or throwing away single cigarette butts approaching with an air of imposition rather than authority a step away from why are you here they thrust a notepad in your face declaiming you as a litterer those sleeping rough need the public their faceless neighbors that walk past them on a day-to-day basis to be the watchdog homeless people are often asking themselves the same question it seems is it illegal to just be here? You feel guilty before you even opened your mouth. Logically, to an enforcement officer, the biggest offenders are the homeless because they spend the most of their time lying on the ground. Spotting and removing them could only be a good thing. To that end, thank- thankfully, they deferred to the higher-ups and even to the public. They've been common enough alongside, uh, along the side of any London bus shelter. Advertisements that beseech the public to call a number and report rough sleepers. They are then asked for all relevant information on location, the description of the person, their comings and goings, who they might be. Likely, with all the good intentions in the world, the Good Samaritan hangs up and goes on their way with a sense of mission accomplished. Outside of on the street somewhere, the rough sleeper in question is going to receive an unexpected visit. Anywhere from a ruffling of the feathers, no thank you, to a new chance at hope. It's not a flat, but it's inside. To death sentence. Back to what home? Here's what happens at some point in the next few weeks for the rough sleeper. Around 6am to 7am in the morning, two workers from an outreach team engage the person by waking them up and asking them how they'd come to be here, uh, be there, how long they've been there, and most importantly, where they are from. Along with them could be a team of immigration officers asking for identification and how long the sleeper had been in the country. Bleary-eyed is a tough choice of who to look at and who to be more wary of. Those with the knives behind their backs, or those jabbing the pen at you. Though this is this all the while being talked to as if you're the owner of a dog that shit on the road without having cleaned it up. Except, of course, it's your life. Having agreed to the idea of being helped into a hostel, temporary night shelter, or showing any interest whatsoever, the person would be urged to meet the worker following the following day somewhere public, like a day centre. A ticket for a shower, have some food, make a call. They're having met were having met with their caseworker to be, they'll discuss whether the rough sleeper has identification and their origins. Without proper paperwork, there is largely nothing to be done and no procedure that can go ahead unhindered, be it a bank account, job application, GP or library visit. This can feel like a leap of faith for someone who has the potential to be wary of the of authoritarian figures authority figures in general. Isn't this the system that I wasn't good enough for? And who is in an incredibly vulnerable position. You open yourself to these people and expect support, at the very least, a show of humanity. They are supposed to be there to help lift you back up and into a life that you actually want to lead. Emotionally, it's a precarious place to be. You are hopeful for a better future, but unsure of what it is exactly this person wants from you. They're here to help, though, aren't they? Or maybe just, at least they offered me a fag. Slowly, the bad news will be broken, often in a clinical, chastising tone. 
Should you be too honest about breaking up with your spouse or having lost your paperwork, being merely separated from the European economic area, British national husband or wife renders you illegal in the UK, a new challenge with all the unpleasantries, unpleasantness already in tow. After this will come threats of deportation or attempts to remove the said client from the borough. At first there is an offer of a flight back home, then an implied threat or a slow trail of paperwork leading to the border agency. As someone who went through the process last year, I can state that I was simply too shocked to react with anything but sadness and dismay. The likelihood of fighting a successful legal battle, let alone calling an office when you're fatigued, depressed and confused, is low. This often leads to sleeping in places one doesn't necessarily feel safe or comfortable, outside of the rest of the world, but within proximity to a million other dangers. Homeless people are often asking themselves the same question, it seems. Is it illegal just to be here? You feel guilty before you open your mouth. Before you even open your mouth. You already feel as though you're in a trench warfare. Sore, cracked feet from bacteria in shower stalls, no bus fare, and the mercy of weather, sweaty but incapable of washing clothes regularly. Just a few of the things that bring you to your lowest. Morale isn't even the word because eventually the battle becomes you. It is simply weathering an endless storm. While the rest of the world is walking off to work or their various appointments unaware of the real life drama unfolding in the side street next to them. It became worse in the build up and after the exit referendum. Only public backlash led to its end that and the tenacity of the homeless, particularly a case brought to the, before the High Court that ruled it was unlawful to deport rough sleepers from the EEA in December 2017. Regardless of the origin of the person, the relationship between organisations claiming to be sent to help the homeless and the border agency or the police officer and a frightening uh, glimpse into a world where bureaucracy and technicalities lead to open warfare on an incredibly vulnerable yet still valuable segment of society. <coughs> Excuse me. There is a feeling that they have the power to act in this way while the public is ignorant or disaffected due to the current political climate and that they will make the best of it while they can. Or worse, they feel this will set a precedent and become new climate. Those sleeping rough need the public, their faceless neighbours that walk past them on a day-to-day -day basis to be the watchdog. It's often the only defence they have against authority. They themselves feel faceless but not nameless, and their word often feels to count for nothing. I don't think Orwell would have approved of any of it. It's one thing to be down and out, another to be ejected from one dystopic society into another, when looking back at those in a position of power necessitates a hungry challenge in the eyes to gain any foothold in the world, when life's throwing you consistent curveballs, you open yourself to these people and expect support at the very least to show humanity. Try registering for, registering for anything that requires standing in a queue, knowing you're reeking, but incapable of getting to a nearby shower, feeling too shy to go stink up a friend's doorstep in an already hectic world. For a quote-unquote regular guy on the streets, any everyday encounter of social kind feels like going into a job interview. More than socialising socializing, socializing in any form, you feel cast as a wounded soldier, stripped of uniform, unshowered and with no worthy story to tell. This year, it has seemed safe to speak with the street team sent to deal with those of us in unfortunate situation. But my advice is you're still better off keeping mum on anything related to your legal status in the UK if your paperwork isn't finalised or if there are any grey areas that could be used by those with quotas, those waiting for waiting at the rafters, ready to swoop down and eject you. <coughs> I need a drink. I've already led a nomadic life and I want to place my roots with the people I love regardless of where they are. 
Fortunately, the local teams have changed for the better since 2017 court ruling. Now you're allowed the possibility of a roof over your head in a nice shelter, albeit with their own issues, and ongoing support with the process of claiming benefits. It's enough to start work again, but this took close to two years of being on the streets, trying to work on and off six days a week in kitchens for up to 10-12 hours, and going through my own heartache. All the, while, all the while struggling to save money and then falling back down through the gap somewhere. The answer doesn't lie in anything but unity and understanding of the human condition. It's about maintaining the virtue of the people and it starts with those in the most vulnerable positions. And I think that last point is very poignant, funny enough, um, because, you know, if you apply it to, you know, something like something like child poverty for example right um i feel like that's something that people more or less can really um that we can all understand as a bad thing nobody wants nobody likes the idea of a hungry kid right um but a homelessness is something that you know obviously has a <coughs> excuse me has a dirty mark on it you know, they're, they're, if you give them money, they're just going to do drugs with it. For example, I've been t- I've been told that so many times in my life. It's like, why did you, uh, why did you give that dude money? It's because because he asked for it, <laughs> and it's and it's just like, yeah, but he's just going to use it to use it to take drugs. I'm just like, that's their prerogative. Like, I'm not gonna, I I don't feel bad for giving somebody money. You know, they operate how they operate. They, I don't know how they got there. I don't know their story. Um, so you know, every time if I if I'm a, if I can do it, by the way, I don't always give money because sometimes I just don't have the money. But if I do have the money, I I you know I give the money because you know, like I said, I I well not like I said, but obviously I see them as humans. I see them as you know just people that are that are down bad in some fashion, right? Um, and they need a leg up, however they can get it. And I, I really, I really vibed with that. Every socialize, every socializing, um, every bit of that that they do. Every time they talk to someone, it feels like a job interview. And I can get what I can get what they mean by that, because you know, a lot of the time, is that you just, you know, can I have some spare change? You know, do you have a, do you have a, I need this, I need money for shelter tonight. Can you spare anything? Stuff like that. And it, I can imagine, I can feel that. I can feel that job interviewee kind of nervousness, you know. And, you know, I haven't been homeless. I'm blessed to say that. I've never been, you know, in child poverty. I've never been in poverty in any fashion. I'm blessed to say that. But these are real things. These are things that are happening. Um, locally, round your corner maybe, down your road... Uh, maybe in your family, who knows, right? And you don't have to have the answers. You don't have to. You don't have to even give money, you know, if you don't want to, right? It's your prerogative. It's your money. Do what you want with it, right? Um, but you know, just realize that these are these are these are people. <laughs> these are these are people. They are alive. They're they're doing what they feel they can do. Um, I can't imagine they wake up with bundles of energy. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it seems tough. And the immigration side of it, if that if that comes into play, that's just a. I can't imagine anything more um, more 
pressurized where you know you need help but you you don't feel like you could take it because you might get deported and i get that too um so yeah i just wanted to throw that out there as well because all this talk about homelessness in the past couple of weeks has just been very jarring and i feel like you know just see just a re just an affirmation that you know these are human beings that are that are down bad in in a lot of ways um not that you specifically can you know need or can help them um at least again in the same way you acknowledge in the previous segment acknowledge that you know these these people are humans at least at least do that and not just walk by them um and not acknowledge at least Okay, we are finishing off um, the show and the year with, um, a f- a <laughs> funny enough, a, uh, a piece about Marvel because, you know, we've got to talk about Marvel, you know, just to, just have to do that, it just has to be done. Uh, but no, I just found this article very interesting. Um, I haven't really been in the, I haven't really been in the discourse of, you know, the uh, the Marvel's, Marvel's uh, film, um, obviously combine um uh Monica Rambeau, Miss Marvel and Captain Marvel. Um I haven't been in that universe at all. I haven't really, you know, just I haven't really seen the discourse. Um well I have seen the discourse and what I've seen is just basically misogyny, right? Um <laughs> but, uh, I I wanted to read this piece because I again found it interesting. Um yeah, it's by Levy Scotts, uh by Inverse. I haven't spun an inverse um article before. Got to see what Inverse is about these days. Um, see what they're about. But anyway. And it's called uh, Marvel's Issues Didn't Begin With The Marvels. Of course it didn't. Of course. Um, and I mean that sincerely. It sounded sarcastic. But I mean that sincerely. Because a lot of the problems with the film industry. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I can I can go on. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Let's finish off. Because um, I need a drink. Uh, when Black Panther premiered in 2018. It seemed like Hollywood was at the start of a major shift. Headlines the world over heralded the solo debut of Marvel's first black black hero, while audiences turned up in droves to witness the historic event. It was inescapable in a lot of ways. Bobby Miller, culture critic and host of pop culture podcast The Afternoon Special, tells Inverse, it felt like everyone was on the same page and making this movie feel as important as it was. Uh, that was a really special time. The groundswell support for Black Panther was unprecedented. Black celebrities funded screenings of the film out of their own pockets, while critics and fans alike were enraptured by the world of Wakanda. Uh, Black Panther went on to become the uh, Marvel's first Best Picture nominee at the Academy Awards, securing the studio the prestige that had eluded, eluded it for a decade. Everyone wanted a piece of its success, and Marvel seemed determined to recreate that magic. After Black Panther came, uh, Captain Marvel, First Marvel film to feature a female hero at centre stage. The studio was actively hiring more directors of colour, from Taika Waititi to Chloe Zhao. Uh, the big franchises had finally caught up with audience pleas for genuine diversity and inclusion. It felt like a new world. But did any of it stick? Just five years after Black Panther inspired a wave of big budget movies with more inclusive casts, the effects already appear to be petering out. The industry is slipping back into old habits. 
while the filmmakers who championed the movement are falling through the cracks. This feels particularly evident for the Marvels, the 33rd film in the MCU and the lowest grossing in its 15 year history. Despite its flaws, the Marvels is an incredibly important film, owing a lot to Black Panther's success. Director Nia DaCosta is the first black woman to helm any Marvel property and the second black filmmaker to direct an MCU film after Ryan Googler. Her introduction comes at a time where black fe- when black female directors are still fighting to be seen and heard in genre spaces, but the reception of the film reveals just how dire things remain for marginalised filmmakers. We put a lot of onus on being bringing marginalised creators into the mainstream, Miller says. Oftentimes studios will put black actors and black directors out there and just leave them to the wolves. Unquote. Midnight reviews are, and disappointing box office earnings turned the Marvels into the face of the Marvel problem, embodying the franchise's waning focus on coherent storytelling and general sense of superior fatigue. Okay, let me stop there because I obviously mentioned my wording of what is superior fatigue. Um, this came, for me, it came a f- basically a couple of years ago, to be honest, right? Um, I'm kind of over it all. I think after Endgame, it's just, um, you know, when it's so, when something so grand just finishes off and then it moves on to the next thing. Um, I don't know, I just just kind of started waning from there. You know, Black Panther 2 came out, I watched that. And, you know, while I liked it in some ways, I do feel it's just like... (sighs) I mean, Chadwick died, you know what I mean? It It just didn't feel... It didn't feel the same, um, and uh, they did. They did their best. I respect them for doing it. I respect the fact that it exists. Um, but I don't know. It's just something about it that um, just doesn't really. It, it it it's like a it's like a big it's like one big you know salute to him, instead of actually being anything else. And while that means a lot um, to a lot of people, I'm sure it just um, I don't know. It just feels. It does. It doesn't feel like it's a repeat watch. You know what I mean? Like the first one did. The first one was just such a great introduction, um, and the second one just feels like, okay, here's here's what you can watch if you want to cry for a bit. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I haven't spun the TV shows because, to be honest, visually they just don't look appealing to me, um, and that's another thing. I feel like you know it's kind of I'm kind of boycotting on behalf of like VFX people because then I think they're going to unionize or they or some of them have unionized or whatever, but I feel like, you know, they're being crunched and because of that, products look shit. Um CGI these days is just looking really terrible. VFX is looking really terrible. Um not to their not to the, the quality of VFX people hasn't diminished. Far from it. They're just being crunched. And that's kind of just my I'm not watching it because I don't want to give my attention to these, uh, to, to what is overall, you know, Hollywood, and I just, I just don't respect that at all, I don't respect them at all, I don't respect Hollywood as an institution, I really don't, um, and that's just kind of my way of doing it, and seeing Marvel as the epitome of that kind of thing these days, or Marvel Studios, and how they operate, I'm just not into that, um, and I can happily just go, you know what? Not going to do that. I'm not going to participate. So that's just me. That's my. That's where my fatigue comes from. Um, so you know, just to just to state that out there. Anyway, but it's also inadvertently answered a question that are that you are prepared to unpack: Is Hollywood slash push for identity for content? And there's that word, content, a real priority or just another trend on its way out? 
Quote, just because Black Panther made a couple billion dollars, it doesn't mean the entire landscape has changed, said Los Angeles Times uh, critic Robert Daniels in conversation with The Face. If we train our eyes to the entire landscape, we can still see the inequities. While it's gotten better in some respects for people of colour and women, it hasn't. A 2022 study by the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, shout out to them, I love their reports, um, have re- re- revealed increasing disparities in Hollywood. Of the 111 directors helming the top grossing movies of the year, only 9% were women, a significant drop from 2021's already dismal 12.7%. Just 20% of films in 2022 were helmed by people of colour. Of course, 20% is much better than nothing at all, but breaking into the industry is hard enough already. In a way... Marvel has been doing its part uh, by hiring more diverse creator- directors fresh off the independent circuit. Ryan Coogler is just one of the su- their success stories, having directed just two films before he was tapped to helm Black Panther. But that strategy often backfires uh, when indie directors are dropped, in onto, dropped into the studio system with very little experience, which has become more and more common with the, in the aftermath of Black Panther. The studio's unprecedented indie to blockbuster pipeline definitely has its upsides. Without it, the Russo brothers, Captain America Winter Soldier, or John Watts' Spider-Man trilogy wouldn't exist as we know as we know them. But for every triumph, there's also disappointment. And while not every Marvel film could be a winner, the backlash is growing increasingly pointed against more marginalised voices. According to Jennifer Pollitt, uh, assistant director of Temple University's Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies program, that double standard has always been there. Quote, we're quicker to critique pieces of media that are by and for marginalised communities. Pollitt tells Inverse, they're held not only to a double standard, but a higher standard expectation, unquote. That expectation puts countless filmmakers under unfair scrutiny, and as Marvel continues its downward streak, uh, they seem to be the ones shouldering the blame more often than not. Taika Waititi was once lauded as the saviour of the full franchise, as his colourful, more irreverent sensibilities breathe new life into the character in Thor Ragnarok. Following the mixed reception to his latest Thor film, Love and Thunder, he quickly became a target of derision. Um, another Thor film is still on the table, but apparently, uh, apparently, but YTT won't be returning for it. The heel turn against YTT may just be a symptom of increasingly toxic fandom, but compared to backlash that other Marvel films have faced, there may be a bit more to it. Um, this bra- new brand of ad hominem criticism culminates with the Marvels and director Neil DeCosta, who's been shouldering the brunt of the film's failure before audiences even had the chance to see it. It doesn't help that the Marvels' promotion window coincided with the longest actor strike in history, which meant that DeCosta was initially tasked with promoting the film alone, but the director has been the target of subtle scrutiny all the same, not only from fans, but from publications like Variety and The Hollywood Reporter. There's a subtle difference between the way crit- that critics discuss the Marvels and Acosta and how they discuss their white counterparts. Consider a film like Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, which embodied Marvel's woes long before the Marvels came along. But for all its flaws, <laughs> excuse me, its director is scarcely mentioned in the criticisms against the film. No one is looking at Peyton Reed and saying, ah, that's the person who killed the MCU, Miller says. He's kind of able to get off unscathed. I didn't even know who directed it <laughs> until he just said his name, so that's, that's saying a lot. Uh, it's not uncommon for Marvel to let its product speak for itself or to let directors defend their work. But the studio silence in this context has become pretty damning, especially as it highlights the most glaring flaw in Marvel's new appetite for inclusivity, the issue of exceptionalism. Quote, I don't think that female directors or uh, female directors or directors of colour get the chance to make a flop, Miller explains. 
the opportunity to grow and find yourself as a director just doesn't happen in the same way it does for white directors. You have to operate at perfection every single time you put out a movie, unquote. Within the studio system, however, directors like DaCosta may have not may not have the support system they need to tell stories on their terms. Quote, where studios don't actually put any real work into bringing up these filmmakers, investing in, in them, allowing them to tell stories that they want to tell. They could just abandon it if, they, if it doesn't yield the success markers that they've set for it, Miller says. Marvel might be bringing, uh, might be working hard to create Black Panthers, uh, recreate Black Panther's success, but according to Miller, quote, it doesn't seem like they're really investing in what made Black Panther work, unquote. Diversity was, uh, but quote, a piece of what made the movie so successful. Miller says Black Panther didn't skimp on telling a complete story either. Something that seems to elude the Marvels and most of its contemporaries in the MCU. The newer film lacks coherent pacing, a compelling villain that strengthened Black Panther. While the chemistry of its leads certainly propels the film where it counts, it's not quite enough to give the Marvels a sense of purpose or place. Combined with anti-woke backlash facing Marvel's most recent efforts, the Marvels finds itself as an, an uncomfortable crossroads. Quote, all of these things are stacking up against each other that are preventing the Marvels from being judged on its own or even in good faith, uh, Miller says. So where exactly does Marvel go from here? Pollitt believes that the Marvels uh, holds the key to addressing the tangled issues plaguing fandom spaces. That's the conversation to start, she says. Let's explore why there are different expectations based on race, gender, class, or female director, uh, <laughs> for a female director versus a male director, unquote. Sorry for the coughing. Uh, condemning unfair criticism when it arises should be another key to, to writing a sinking ship. The teams behind Disney's biggest franchises, quote, have been catering a little bit too much to smaller subsets of their fandom, says Miller. The fandoms that buoy uh, these uh, properties have been overrun by a vocal minority, most of whom object to anything remotely resembling diversity. In recent years, countless franchises have come under fire for their attempts to decenter whiteness, as Marvel is one of the most visible franchises at the moment. Fan, quote-unquote fan outrage, here has become the most prominent, but Marvel rarely acknowledges the backlash, even when it affects its most visible collaborators. Marvel needs to focus on protecting its actors and directors, most of whom have become collateral damage in fandom criticism. Quote, uh, There is a symbiotic relationship between studio and fandom, Miller says. But at the end of the day, the studio sets the tone. Trust that the people you've tasked with telling that story can do it to the best of their ability. Uh, stick behind your actors, directors, screenwriters, because filmmaking is a collective thing. You have to work as a team, unquote. For a while now, Marvel Studios has tried uh, to have its cake and eat it too. After the success of Black Panther proved the merits of identity-forward, identity idea-driven content, Marvel pursued that more frequently, but those efforts can clash with the studio's unified house style. No one's discounting the feats that Marvel has pulled off in the last decade in change, but the MCU is at its best when individuals can put their own stamp on the franchise. Per Miller, Marvel could benefit from taking the back seat more often. Quote, allow the work to speak for itself, and let the community rally behind something when they know it's special. <sighs> I mean, it's 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 a it's a it's a thing that I feel um, I I feel that they need to just slow the fuck down. That's all. That's all I believe. I I think if they slow down and stop trying to put out like twenty things in a year. And, 
you know, um, and say that, oh yeah, the next Avengers film is going to be in like three years, and then someone who's a complete novice in comics like myself goes to watch, shout to Comics Explained, shout to Rob uh, for Comics Explained on YouTube, um, he did, he well he does, a, a, just um, a really good effort of like um, telling the stories of certain comic, you know, uh, comic lines, and um, I had a look at the like, I think like an hour and a half um, um, commentary on just like what the Kang Dynasty story is and what that's... Um, you know what that is, a new avengers film is going to be about <laughs> and i'm just like I, I said to ryan i was like there's no fucking way they're doing this in a few years this is a 10 year project right there and they're going to do that in 5 get fucked right and obviously there's been a lot of things such as the strike there's um, and pandemic there's you know pushed a lot of things back but fuck this whole thing needs to slow the fuck down this whole thing needs to slow down. That's all it is, I believe. If they slow down and put more effort into these things, and in, sa- in the same way that Miller says, you know, what I mean, give the, give the people, give the filmmakers some grace, right, and give them some room, then things will, good things will happen. That's the point. That <laughs> I don't know why I have to say. I don't. I, why do I have to say this? Art is isn't beholden by time it's not beholden by deadlines if it's per, if it's, it's it comes out when it needs to come out now obviously i'm not um operating a, a multi billion uh, you know dollar studio um that is a key cash cow for a another billion dollar um corporation in disney right i'm not I don't have a uh, I don't have a seat in any of those boardrooms, okay? So I can't talk about the bottom line and I don't want to because I'm an artist and I don't see that shit. I don't care about that shit. It comes when it comes. That's all I believe. And the fact that they keep rushing these projects out is just going to it's bound to just be garbage. And it it kind of gives off this vibe of like, well why should I watch it if you're not going to put the effort in? And I'm not saying the VFX people are not putting the effort in. I'm not saying the filmmakers in general are putting the effort in. They're putting all the effort in they can possibly get. But they're not given the time. They're not given the space. They're not given the. Uh, they're not given any any sort of keys to actually create uh, for creative freedom. And when you have all of those things meshed into a pot, you're gonna get some. You're gonna get some boo boo work. That's all it is. You're gonna get some boo boo work, and. Um, <clears throat> As I finish off, um, before I sign off, um, Hollywood needs to die. <laughs> if uh, if any of this um, says anything to me, um, it says that Hollywood needs to die. <laughs> um, I get why I get why you know blockbusters and franchises exist. I understand it. I've you know I've I've read enough on that of why they're why they're um, prevalent, and um, you know. Is something that um, started at a certain point uh, with stuff like Jaws, for example, in Star Wars, right? And now it is a prerequisite for any um, Hollywood studio that they all they all have to have that tentpole thing that gets the masses going. Um, but I, if if they're not going to put the effort in, then what's the fucking point in them? Like if they're not gonna put out, if they're not gonna take the time to put out good work, then what's the point in them? 
honestly, what is the point in them? In, instead, have someone like Nia DaCosta go through all this bullshit and all these um, oddly worded reports from, again, like the variety, you know, variety in the Hollywood Reporter talking about her um, in some weird-ass light. And it's just, why are you making out her to be the bad person here? It doesn't make sense. Um, so, yeah. Um, Hollywood must Hollywood must burn. Um, and as I always say, burn the table. And with that said, we shall leave it there. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Fifth End Podcast Network, I've been Charlie Taylor, and this has been What's Good. Intro music has been Too Much by Vanilla. Thanks to your music for a bit to use track. You can also find uh, the link, both links in the full show notes, as well as a friend of 5e, Nappy Hires, Charismatic Interlude, and you can find his work in the full show notes. And with that said, for the final time for 2023, I hope you all have a good end of the year. Have a good December, Christmas holidays, whatever you celebrate. Um, have a great new year to the Gregorian calendar. <laughs> and I shall see you. Um, let's check, let's check. Let's, 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 let's count the days, shall we already? Let's count the days. I shall see you on January 3rd, 2024, when we will begin once again, What's Good Wednesdays, and keep on with that. So until then, hope you all have a good end of the year. I shall always try and do the same. Take notice of the uh, the end of year lists that are coming through. Stay locked into uh, the 5EIG, preferably, but if you want to look into the Twitter as well, go for that. Um, but yeah, lists are coming at the end of the end of the year. But until then, until January 3rd, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.